It is a pleasure to welcome all of you to this time of worship, to this time of focusing in on what God is doing in our midst, what God is doing in our world, and what God wants to do in us. And we've been examining that in this series that we have been in Romans. Grace changes everything, and we're going to continue on with that today. It's good to welcome those of you who are in the room. For those of you who are watching online, welcome to you. For those of you who are checking this out in the classic venue, welcome. And on our Moon campus, it is good to be united in all of these different places, even though we're not all together in the same room. It's also a good pleasure to welcome all of our moms. Happy Mother's Day weekend to all of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a great, we're just so thankful for the moms of Pathway, for all of the women of Pathway who make this place what it is. I cannot even begin to imagine what we would be trying to do if we didn't have the influence of all of the ladies of Pathway. We would not be where we are. And uh, so just my tremendous gratitude to you for who you are and uh, your presence with us on this special weekend here together as well. Thank you. So what I want to talk about tonight or what I want to think about as we get started is an idea of if you were to ask Americans, what do they want most? If you were to ask yourself, what is it that you would desire most? One of the things, if you just threw that question out there, that would come back, there'd be a variety of different things that would come back. There's no doubt about that. Some would talk about wanting a good and strong economy. Some would talk, especially in these days, about wanting lower prices uh, compared to where things happen to be going. Some would say that they would love to see a fix for all of the division that is existing in our world, be it racially or politically or from whatever realm. Some people would just say, I just want to guarantee that I don't have to sit next to the screaming kid on the plane, right? Some would want that. Moms would rise up. They would say, what we want is, is the very best for our children. We want them to grow in their physical health. We want them to grow in their spiritual health and, and to know Jesus and to, and to move forward in strong ways in that regard and serve Him always. We know that that would be on our mom's hearts. Also on our mom's heart are probably, don't make me the woman who has the screaming kid on the plane, right? I'm sure that that would be out there also. But all of these things and others, and no doubt one of the things that would also surface is this idea that we want personal freedom. We all want personal freedom. It is what people are after, certainly in our culture today, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. One of the things that demonstrates that so clearly is this whole great resignation that is happening in our world. What are people saying? Workers are saying, I want more freedom. I want more freedom for being able to work the hours that I want to work or from the locations that I want to work or I want freedom to have a better job than I've been slaving away in for so long or I want the freedom to get a job where I have better working conditions or where I've got better pay. And so people are leaving the workplace and the droves of people are leaving. And if you look at all of the different help wanted signs that are virtually in every business's window, you would tend to think that these people who are leaving these jobs aren't working at all. They're just on the sidelines now. But that's not the case. It's not the case at all. Most all of those who are quitting their jobs are going to some other job, a job that is giving them that sort of freedom from whatever it was that they were running from in the first place. And so there are all kinds of jobs that are out there that are being pursued while certain sectors of jobs are sort of being walked away from. 
And you can see that all over, and you can see that it's not just a new job to an individual person. There are also some new jobs, new sorts of jobs that are out there that are attracting people right and left. For instance, I saw that Tesla is hiring driverless car engineers. That's something that's pretty new in our, in our world. It's been around a little while, but it's, it's pretty new overall. Or you could get a job as a blockchain analyst. You probably don't know what that is, and neither do I, but it's out there. And uh, you have that opportunity if that's something that you would want to pursue. Or I've got one that might interest you even more. A food delivery company right now is hiring what they're calling their chief taco officer. And this might interest you. Yeah, it sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? Here's what you need to do. It's just a two-month-long job. It might interest you. All you need to do is go to Texas and drive across Texas for June and July. And through this food ordering company, you just need to order food, tacos. At least you need to order these tacos. At least two meals out of the three every day, you have to eat tacos. And then you post about your experience. That's all you do. And you can be the chief taco officer. They pay for all of your food. They pay for your accommodations. They pay for your car. They supply all of your gas. I mean, if you're eating two meals of tacos a day, yeah, there's probably plenty to go around, right? So, and for all of that, they will pay you $10,000. How many of you would be interested in being the chief taco officer? This, all right, there's a lot of you who would be interested in that. Well, whether it's moving from whatever you're doing into the freedom of moving into that job or a different job or, or just in general in life, freedom is something that resonates with all of us. We very much are interested in going that. We value that. We don't want anybody to have influence over us. We want to make our own decisions. So much so that one of our sort of cultural mantras that is out there is this. It's my life. Right? Did you ever hear that? It's my life. In fact, we might all use as our anthem in America, going back to Billy Joel. Remember what he's saying? I don't care what you say anymore. It's my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. That resonates today. Even though the song is pretty old at this point, that still resonates today. People want their own independence. They want to do their own thing. Of course, that has implications, and some of those implications are spiritual. And we're going to talk about that here Today, today we come to a very interesting passage in the book of Romans where our author, the Apostle Paul, dives into this idea of freedom. Where is freedom found? How do we get there? And how are we able to live in it? And the place that we find it is in Romans chapter 6. At the end of this chapter, verses 15 to 23, grab your scripture journal so you can jot down some of this stuff as we make our way along because this applies for all of us. Just like you and me, people in the first century, also valued their freedom. And ironically enough, many of the attempts that they made to go and find and pursue and experience that freedom, many of the steps they took were the very steps that kept them from being able to achieve it. It's kind of surprising. You think, well, you're going after freedom. You're... No. Some of the very steps they used to try to get there are the very things that kept them from it. And the thing is, those same things apply today. We are also people who want to pursue our freedom. And there's some steps that you may very well be taking yourself to try to get to that place that are actually the very things that are hindering you from being able to get there. 
You might find yourself today in a position where you're trying to gain your own autonomy and your own freedom, and you think, this is what's going to set me up for purpose and meaning and fulfillment and happiness. And you've been going after it, and you've been going this way toward that freedom and that way toward that freedom. And if you were honest today, you would have to acknowledge, you know what? It never has really gotten me there. I get to a point, and then I get stuck. Well, if you've had any of that sort of experience or having it now, then what Paul has to say is going to be very illuminating. It's going to be something that's going to assist you in understanding why that hasn't taken you where you want to go and why there's something else that most definitely can. That's what he's going to be talking about today. Today we're going to be talking about this. This is our, this is our title for today. We're going to be talking about where freedom is found where freedom is found. Paul gives us a few different answers to that, and here's the thing. They aren't all intuitive. There are going to be some things that you hear, and it's going to be kind of a head scratch, and it's going to be like, really, that can, that can do that, or that will get me to that place? Yes, absolutely. But if we can grasp them, then freedom is what we're going to find. It might challenge your perceptions of what you think would naturally make sense, but it can take us there. So, first of all, three things here. First of all, where freedom is found is in grace. Freedom is found in grace. In the book of Romans, it is clear that Paul knew a little something about the human heart, and he knew that we have a tendency where we can to twist something to our own benefit. And so if we find something where there's a loophole, we'll use it. If we find something where it'll give us a justification for some bad behavior that we were doing, we will take it. We will use that. If there's some excuse that we can come up with that can excuse our behavior or can, can in some other way elevate us, we're going to take that. We're going to use that also. We're people who love and are very able to find those loopholes. Teachers and employers are ones who hear a lot of excuses from their students and from their employees as to why they were late or why they didn't do this or that. Like the student who said to his teachers an excuse that he didn't do his homework because he didn't have the internet, which sounds you know, pretty reasonable if you had to have the internet to do the assignment. The thing that got him in trouble was that he emailed his excuse to the teacher. She didn't buy it. But what I like even better than that was the woman who was late for work, and she made her excuse this, that she had been in bed and sleeping, but while she was sleeping, she dreamt she was at work, so she didn't feel she had to get up and out of bed because she was sleeping and thinking she was at work the whole time. I like that excuse. Well, Paul knows that we're people who can find that loophole in anything. So in chapter 6, what he does a couple different times is he is making sure that he's, he's covering the loophole. He's covering the things that people might interpret one way to make sure that they have the appropriate and right understanding. And we saw this last week. Let me remind you of that one. Right at the end of chapter 5, in verse 20, he's talking about some very glorious good news to us, and what he writes there is that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's great good news, but Paul knew that people are going to read that. Where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more, and so the more sin, the more grace, and so we may as well continue on or go on and advance our sin so that there might be even more grace that we'd experience or that God can use to demonstrate his own glory. So right away, knowing that that's where the human heart might very well go, he gives 
the other side of it. He says, no, let me give you this clarification. And he says right away in verse 1, then of chapter 6, which is just a verse later, says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers his own question, by no means. He says, you're going to try to twist it. I know that you are. He knows our hearts. He says, but here's the way that things really are. And then at the end of last week's passage, in verse 14, we come into a very similar thing. Here's what he said in verse 14 of chapter 6. He said, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Same thing. Paul knows people are going to twist this. They're going to try to use it to an advantage that is different from what I am trying to communicate to them saying, well, if we're not under law and we're under grace, if we're not under law, then the rules that used to apply don't apply anymore. So I can just go and live however I want to because grace is going to rule the day, not law anymore. And so in the very next verse, Paul offers the clarification to that to make sure that they don't go off in the wrong direction, which happens to be the very first verse of our passage for today. So this is where we get started. He writes in response to what he thinks people might be processing. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, he answers his own question here in verse 15, by no means. You might be tempted to read that we're not under law, but under grace that Paul says here is considering, as he was afraid they might, that the law is obsolete, that there's no need for the law anymore. But that's not what he's trying to say. He's not suggesting to us that it's an either-or proposition, that it's either going to be law or it's going to be grace, that it's one or the other, that it's either or. You know what an either or sort of statement is, right? Either or is this TV is on or it's not. It's got to be one or the other. It can't be both of those things. Either or is I am holding a Bible. That's either true or that's not true. Either or is you have a good pet or you have a cat. I mean, either or. They both can't be true at the same time. You see, that's what either or is. And Paul's saying, that's not what I'm suggesting. He is saying, I'm not suggesting that it's either the law or it is grace. That's not his point. He's saying that actually both of them can coexist in a very special and important way in what he has to tell us here. See, the law continues to have value in that it helps us to understand God's moral code and how it is that God would intend for us to relate to him and engage with him and how he would have us to relate and engage with other people as well at the same time. There is a benefit to that. And if we take and apply God's moral law, if we take and use those aspects of what he has given to us to go ahead and influence the way that we engage with other people, then it's going to lead to harmony in those relationships where grace abounds, where they're, we're taking and applying that law, that moral law appropriately, because it means that we will not lie toward them, which is one of the things like the Ten Commandments has to say. We won't steal from them. We won't cheat them. We won't harm them. All of that is still valuable to bring into play. And the truth is, if you really think about it, if we as a society would take and apply God's moral law to all of our relationships, so many of the circumstances that we deal with day by day, so many of the things that bother us as it, as it comes to like race relations and other division that exists between people and groups, so much of that would just be no more if we would take and just apply the law that has already been laid out. There is a value to it. He's not saying that you should jettison that 
altogether. He's not saying, you church in Rome, you should get rid of it. No, he's not saying that we should get rid of it either because there's a value in it to be sure. The problem was that people were using the law not as a guide to faithfulness, but as a means of salvation. That if I can keep the law well enough, then God is going to be required to show his favor on me. And that's why Paul is drawing this distinction between the two. Not so you'll throw one of them out altogether, but rather so that they might each be kept in its rightful place and used for the benefit that it can actually bring to life. That's what he is saying here. That's what led to, if you look on those things, people thinking that, well, if I do more law, that's going to lead to more God's favor. That's what led them to continue to add on and to make extra requirements and more things that you had to do. And more, th- and that continued on down through the ages to very recently as well. It's why some of you only could play Uno growing up. You couldn't play Euchre, right? That's why some of you couldn't, weren't allowed to go dancing. Unless your parents were extra lenient, then occasionally you could do a square dance. All right? How many of you am I talking to? How many of you uh, had that kind of growing up experience? Couldn't play cards. You couldn't go, right? Okay. Well, that's, the, that's what was going on here. That's, that's somebody trying to put on you uh, a circumstance that will make you more holy. That's what the purpose is, and that's what they were doing also, it might be well-intentioned, but just adding to the law isn't what puts us in good standing with God. What puts us in good standing with God is God's grace, and that's something that you cannot earn, and that's what Paul is trying to help them to see and to understand and why he goes into what he is saying here so that they'll grasp that. But here's an important thing to notice about this grace. It's not just something that benefits you for salvation, okay? The grace of God doesn't just benefit you toward salvation. In other words, the the grace of God isn't just for justification or to declare you righteous, as we've defined it many, many times. It's not just to say that, that God has his favor on you because of his grace. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just for justification to be declared righteous. It's also toward the end and benefits you toward sanctification or the process of becoming the person that God has created you to be. It can assist you in the process of living life, not just in getting your way to heaven. And it's very important we understand that, and that's so much of what he is getting at here in this chapter, in the, at least in the second half of this chapter, talking about how we live life and how we progress our way toward righteousness rather than just how we came into understanding or seeing righteousness in the first place through justification. I hope that makes sense. And he's going to continue to pour this out that we will see it. It gives us a new freedom to live by priorities that weren't in our heart previously, the grace of God. So it sort of peels off the crust that would be on our hearts so that there might be this fertile soil that God can pour into so that we might grow and we might develop. And where is that sort of freedom to live that way, to have that grace applied to life? Where does that come from? Well, it's grace. Where's the freedom found? It's found in grace. That's where Paul gets started. That's the stage that he sets for us. And then he goes on. He said, there's another place where freedom is found. And he says, that is in obedience. In grace, freedom is also found in obedience. Look, in our 21st century American mind, the idea that freedom can be found in obedience might not compute. In fact, those things probably sound like 
They're diametrically opposed. Like you can either be free or you can be obedient. Or you can be obedient or you can be free. But you can't be both of those at the same time because they work against one another. That is our 21st century mindset. But here's what Paul says, making a good point. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone, anyone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says we're all slaves of something, essentially. He says there are only two ways to live. We're either living in obedience to purposes that are in step with God's will, or we're living in obedience to things that are purposes that are out of step with what God's will would be for us. It's one or the other. You have the freedom to choose which of those directions that you're going to go, but as soon as you move in that direction, you're conforming to a pattern. You're conforming to a certain ideology. You're lining yourself or linking yourself up with one direction or another. And as you do so, and as you live out that ideology as you live out that pattern you are conforming yourself or in the language that Paul wants to use you are making yourself a slave to that and the more conviction you have about the direction that you are going or that ideology or that belief system the more that you're becoming a slave to that because it is influencing who you are and how you're living it is grabbing a hold of you, essentially, and moving you in that direction. And there's nothing wrong with being strong in your convictions, but as you are, your behavior is driven by those convictions that you hold. Paul says that you are becoming a doulos to those positions. Doulos is a Greek word. We've talked about it before. All the way back to verse 1. Remember, Paul introduced himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos of Christ Jesus. Well, here he uses that word again. Actually, it's popped up throughout the way. But here he uses it again in this other context. He's saying that if you choose to live in a direction that you become a doulos, a servant of that mindset, or as the ESV puts it, you are a slave of that particular mindset or a slave to those beliefs. And Paul puts the things that we end up serving in a couple of big categories. And he labels them sin and righteousness sin and righteousness, but we could break them down a lot further. Because when there is sin that we're obedient to, there are specific things that are that sin that we are, he's using the big category, but we can, we can boil that down or we can move down to a few layers to see, well, what might some of that look like? And I think that might actually be helpful for us. So we can be slaves of work. Slaves of work, and some of you are, where it controls your days, and sometimes it controls your nights, and it can control your mood, and it can control your ability to engage in other things family-wise, or other things church-wise, or to serve, or to be able to do other things, because the work is so consuming, it has control over you. We've become a slave to that very thing. We think we're in control of the work, but based on the way that we're living it looks more like it's actually controlling us. And some of us can easily fall into that. And most often it is men that have that trouble, but not necessarily exclusively. Or we can become slaves of our money to the point where we're always thinking about it or we're assess obsessing over it or we're wondering how much we have. We're always counting how much we have. We're always looking at the statements or how little we have and how much more we need and how am I going to get that and how am I going to get there and how do I feel about the people or the things that might threaten what I already have. 
And then you look around you and you look at the economy, this, the circumstance that we're in now and rising interest rates and, and rising inflation and falling stock markets and, and all the rest. And it can lead you to a place where you feel an anxiety in a place where you feel a real stress about what is happening in the world around us. And when that's the case, it's a pretty clear sign that, that we're becoming a slave to our money and it's influencing who we are and how we process the world around us. Or it could be that you are a slave to pleasures, which might be pleasures of the body, which might be sexual or otherwise, or you might be a slave to the pleasures of of a bigger house or or a, a newer car or a nicer vacation, or it could be almost anything that influences us and pulls us off in a direction, and anything that's pulling you to the place where it's influencing you away from your ability to lean even more so into Christ and more so into the relationship that you have with Him, it starts to become something that is impeding your freedom toward righteousness because it's pulling you in another direction. You might be a slave to your temper, to your habits, or to your hobbies. And when you give into those things, you're living in obedience to them, and they have control over you. And here's the crazy thing. You'll probably argue the opposite. You'll argue they don't have any control over you. You have control over them. You'll insist that you're living free but you're not. You've hitched yourself to a mindset and you're marching in that direction. That's why you keep going in that direction. It's why when there's something going on and you're like, yeah, maybe I ought to change that, or your spouse says, yeah, you ought to change that, or your pastor or somebody else says, yeah, you ought to change that, that you can have so much trouble getting rid of it. You can have so much trouble overcoming that sin, overcoming that temptation, overcoming that habit that is not helpful. Why? Because you're a slave to it. We don't like to use that sort of terminology, but Paul is. So we need to ask ourselves, where are those areas in our life where we would insist that we, we have total freedom? We could stop it at any point. Have you ever, have you ever talked to somebody who's dealing with some sort of, some sort of almost ingrained sin or, or continual sin or addiction, and you try to help them to see that they are really a slave to that particular thing, and what do they say to you? No, I'm not. I could change at any time. Is that just denial? Not necessarily. They don't see it. That's one of the characteristics of slavery is we don't recognize that we've been made slaves to the circumstance that we are in. Now, thankfully, Paul says that slavery isn't only to sin, but there's another sort of slavery, and he says that's actually slavery to righteousness. He goes on, verse 17, look at this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's what Paul has been teaching. It's the gospel. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There it is. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We tend to think of obedience in negative terms because we see it as stifling our autonomy. We see it as stifling our independence. But that's not what it is. Obedience is the key that unlocks the door to experience the fullness of all of what God has created us to be. 
That's what obedience is that he's talking about here. And the greater the obedience, the greater the opportunity. And the greater the obedience, the greater the blessing. And the greater the obedience, the greater the participation we have in who God has made us to be. And that's where he ultimately, obviously, wants to take us. It's as we resist obedience that the limitations start to grow. Think of it like this. Imagine that you wanted to play the piano, all right? You're completely free to walk up to the piano and push any keys that you want to, all the way up and down that keyboard. You could push anything. You have complete freedom to push anything that you want there on that keyboard, right? You have that option, and you can do so, but it's not going to be a very pleasant experience for you or for the person who's in the apartment right above you. Carolyn and I were in the apartment right above the person who was playing any notes that they wanted to play on that piano. But it wasn't something that was bringing them any sort of pleasure or anybody around them any sort of pleasure. In order to play the piano, they were hitting the piano. In order to play the piano, what do you need to do? You need to be obedient to lesson plans. You need to be obedient to practice schedules and to, to learning how to read music. That's where it comes from. And the greater the obedience, the greater the freedom to play the piano and the greater the happiness for the people upstairs <laughs> also. See, similarly, obedience to God's plans and purposes lead us to freedom from sin and freedom to righteousness. From the outside, that might look limiting, but it's what's necessary if we're really going to experience the fullness of what God has for us, if we're really going to learn to play the Christian life and live all of what God would desire to, to come out of our obedience, we can experience that fullness, and that's what He's desiring for us, and it's what provides the greatest satisfaction and enjoyment. So, where freedom is found, in grace, yes, and in obedience, it's not contradictory. Obedience leads us to freedom, the fullness of the freedom that God intends for us. And then there's one more place as well, and that's in holiness. In holiness. This picks up on what Paul has just been saying, and it takes it one more step. He starts here in verse 20 by saying this, writing this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Paul knows that they, these people he's writing to, want freedom, but giving into sin is not freedom. It's slavery. And he says that the only freedom that they have is freedom from the ability to do what's right. It's kind of a backward sort of way of saying it, but he's saying that the one who's in sin, the only thing they're free from is the ability to do things right and to experience the blessing that comes along with that. That's why it shouldn't surprise you when you encounter somebody who makes no claim to be a follower of Jesus, that they live their lives in such a way that they're clearly not a follower of Jesus. That shouldn't surprise you. You shouldn't expect them to be demonstrating Christ-like characteristics because they're slaves to a different belief system. They might happen to, or somebody might be able to coerce them enough in a direction to modify a behavior in a moment, but their heart hasn't been changed. 
That's not really what their desire is, and we shouldn't have the expectation that that's what we would see out of them because there's nothing internally. They're slave to something else. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. All throughout this passage, Paul has been giving us a glimpse of the benefit of living by God's grace and in obedience to him. It's where real freedom is found. That's what he's saying, what he's been saying. Then here he says, there's one more benefit, and that is holiness. It's taking on the character and the attributes of God. It is becoming more and more a person who takes on and demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's who you are free to become. This is who you're free to become. And obedience to God is the thing that leads you here. Now, who do you think has the greater freedom, the person who is a slave to sin or the person who is able to live with joy and peace and patience? Who has the greater freedom? I don't think there's really any question about it. The answer is completely obvious, to be sure. Paul is essentially asking, do you think there's greater freedom in death and separation from God or in following after Jesus? And then for good measure, Paul just reminds us of where that holiness leads. It's to eternal life. And in summary, he turns to one of the best-known verses in all of Romans. In fact, in all of the Bible, it's verse 23, if you look at it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you think there's greater freedom in death and separation from God or in pursuing obedience toward God and and finding eternal life with Jesus forevermore? I think you see the answer and Paul is making it abundantly plain. When it comes to where freedom is found, you know what? You're completely free to choose sin or righteousness You have that freedom, as does everybody else, to choose sin or righteousness. What you don't have is the option of choosing the consequence of the choice that you've made, of the decision that you've made, because that is already settled. That is already determined. And the choice you make for sin or righteousness is going to put you on the path toward sin and death or on the path toward freedom and righteousness in eternal life with Jesus. The question is, which of those paths are you going to choose? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a big question. Which path are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the path of of sin, which feels so free. I can do what I want. Nobody can tell me what I need to do. Nobody can make me do anything. Nobody can make me go anywhere. I can go where I wanted to go. I, wanted, I can do what I want to do. Thinking that that's the ultimate in freedom, not recognizing that that's the very thing that is enslaving us. And the more we insist 
on making our own choice, the deeper and deeper into that bondage we go. And for some of us, we're trapped there. We're trapped. We're living as slaves. And we need to find genuine freedom. And the thing which gives us genuine freedom that puts us in the place where we are experiencing the fullness of all that is available, the fruit of the Spirit and more, that's in pursuing that which you have called us to be, what you have created us to be. And it's in that obedience to you, to your will, to your word, that we're opening up before us the greatest freedom of all. If you're here today and you recognize that there's a measure of slavery that you're in, maybe it's that you don't have any relationship with Jesus and, and you can overcome that by, by turning your heart and your life to Jesus, to making the declaration that you're desiring to be obedient to him and you're submitting your life, you're surrendering yourself to him. You can do that right now just by telling God that you want him to be your savior and that you're surrendering yourself, submitting yourself to him in these moments. Or you may be here today and you're one who would say, you know what, I, I understand the freedom. I'm living in the measure of that freedom it's just not influencing all of who I am. And there are aspects of my life where I recognize I'm in bondage. Father, I pray for those in that circumstance. That we would recognize what, is, what has sucked us in, what has pulled us in that direction is this illusion that living out this freedom, this autonomy, this is, I'm in control is the very thing that removes all the control from us. And all we are are slaves to sin, to the behavior, to the habit, to that which is sucking us in. Friend, if that's you, you pray your prayer that God would help you to walk in obedience to him because that is the path out of what you're mired in. It's the path out of the sin. It's the path out of the slavery. Father, thank you for the clarity of what Paul has given to us. Help us to walk in the freedom of who you've made us to be. It starts with obedience, and we make our commitment to walk in that direction now. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, who died to provide a way out, we thank you for it. We celebrate Jesus, the cross on which he died. We pray it in his name. Amen.